Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, and since 2016, Monica Shimonik has been coaching moms and dads as they navigate through the treacherous waters of the family law racket. Aside from her workshops, which helps with specific problems, her 12-week signature course, The Best Interest of the Parent, uses a four-quadrant model to create a robust healing and empowerment system so that you control the narrative in your life, not the state. Use coupon code SLAMTHEGAVEL to get 10% off the course, and that will be in the podcast notes. Now, I'm bringing back on Bill Coleman. As you recall, he was um, on episode 78, episode one, and then episode two, that is 82, also on the podcast. So now he's going to be 89 today. He'll be season he'll be season 2 episode 89 today. And I welcome back Bill Coleman. We are going to recap and tie in together all these podcasts for episode 3. So I welcome you back Bill. How are you doing? Thanks, Mary. I'm doing great. I was a little worried when you thought I was 89 for a moment. No, <laughs> no. <of> age. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, no, doing well. Hope you're doing well, too. Thanks for having me back on. So, I'm so glad to have you on. And, and we're going to explain and tie all this in together so everyone understands yeah. your story and what you were put through. Yeah, um, and, and I think um, that's a good place to start, like a, a, a brief recap, because there is um, a lot to this, but the, it's like everybody's story. There, there is um, a lot to their stories. Um, the, the way I'm, I, I, I want to picture it for the listeners is if they can put something in their mind, such as a triangle or a pyramid, um, everything really is is the base and and leading its way up and for me and i'm sure it would be for anybody going through parental alienation mm -hmm. the pinnacle the point of the pyramid the point of the the triangle is the is your children that's that's where it all uh, pinpoints together but everything else underneath is the foundation and the the wider uh, levels of things so mm -hmm. Um, you know, within within my pyramid, um, uh, you know, there was many red flags. Uh, there, there was an abduction, um, which took a year to have my children back. Um, there was a family court case. There was a criminal court case. Um, and within those um, two trials, um, a, a lot of things um, came out, uh, particularly in the family court, sadly, very little in the criminal court. Um, but you know, the, the polygraphs, all my evidence, um, the fact that I have alibis, which is possibly in this podcast, the one thing I haven't really gotten into, but that's certainly available on my YouTube video, um, uh, that was done. And if anybody goes on YouTube and searches, um, uh, Bill Coleman, silver bullet, they will, they will see that, uh, video. Um, um, then, you know, um, there's there's just so much where those two courts are linked together um not least of which is probably at trial i wasn't given a defense and i wasn't given a defense because sadly um there was a connection between my defense attorneys um and uh, the prosecutor um and or even though the prosecutor john Connolly uh, later resigned 
uh, it wasn't to do with my case. It was about another case, although I was being brought into that case. Uh, but after his resignation, within a year, he was diagnosed with cancer, and a year after that, he died. And I was unceremoniously told by the FBI that, um, you know, they don't investigate and prosecute dead people. So mm -hmm. there, sadly, was the end of any chance I had of proving my innocence through that route. Um, uh, within all of that, you've got um, how somebody who's an alienator begins the uh, process of lies and manipulation. Uh, certainly she did that with her closest friends and the people she worked for, um, and, and as well as the system. Um, and I think we covered, as and you pointed out the episodes, I think we covered um, many of the things that she was able to claim that were disproven. Um, you know, from saying things uh, in court, she said to police officers that weren't true, things mm -hmm. to do with the car and so on and so forth. Um, and the fact that we did cover, you know, uh, scientific evidence that I had available and polygraphs and so on and so forth. So I, I think that brings us to the point where um, I have been told I'm guilty in a court of law, criminal court of law. and. I have to now be transported in a van uh, to a prison. Mm. And I can't begin to tell you how my stomach and how much of a daze I was in through that whole thing. And for anybody who, um, for people who don't know what that's like, um, you initially go into a, a bull, what they call a bullpen, which is basically where, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, huge area of uh, people, men who have been uh, in court and so on and so forth. Mm. And I just didn't know what to make of it. And um, I, you know, I, 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 it was just the most unbelievable sensation I can, I can describe. Um, but what then transpired uh, was a sequence of events and I think I want to jump straight to the fact that at, at some point um, I knew I was going to go on a uh, hunger strike. Um, I had Gandhi in my mind, um, uh, for example, peaceful, um, you know, uh, objection to things. Mm -hmm. And um, but what I didn't know was that in the United States, they don't accept peaceful protests uh, that way and they will force feed you. Um, so I thought um, in the free Western world that you were able to protest your hunger, um, protest your innocent, go on a hunger strike and be allowed to die. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not a hero. And the only thing that was on my mind was, you know, can I have pain management? Because um, it's painful to die um, from, from hunger and uh, no water. Um, and then I found out that um, I waited until the final appeal, which was two years. And then um, I began my hunger strike. I was immediately um, sent to a hospital, prison hospital. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I was getting, uh, I got this paper saying I was being sued. 
and I was like being sued. I said, I haven't got anything. Right. I can't, I can be, I can be, I mean, the, 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 every dime I've got is gone and I mean sued. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't realize is what it meant was um, I was going to be sued to be force fed. So the, so essentially from that, that process um, starts a um, temporary injunction. So the prison officials were given carte blanche to torture me. And there was nothing in place to protect me. Um, I had, um, you know, no safeguards. So they could essentially do whatever they, um, whatever they want. And you have to remember, in my mind, I was doing this for my children mm -hmm. um, to, to certainly clear um, my name and my innocence. Mm -hmm. And also for a greater good that I knew that other parents and children would go through this. So I had very strong motivations and um, the, the system tried every trick in the book in court and with me personally to make sure I wasn't allowed to do that. They, they, in court, they talked about copycats, for example. Well, nobody can copycat a hunger striker. Mm -hmm. um, because if they were earnest about their particular situation, they're not, they're not copying you. They are doing what they need to do. Mm -hmm. If anybody who's doing a copycat is trying to imitate, in which case they're not real and they won't have the fortitude to keep going. So my greater good of, of other people, children and parents uh, and my own children was what was enabling me to keep going. And if you don't have that, you can't be on a hunger strike. You can't, you can't do it. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. It's, it's beyond human to do it. You've got to have something bigger than you. And the example I've given over the years of that are suicide bombers, believe it or not. And mm -hmm. um, people think that suicide bombers can just, you know, go into a crowded area, press a button and, you know, that's it. it well, that's not true. Um, the reason they're able to do it is because, and in many cases, a lot of people who survive those say that that particular person says some massive statement and then presses a button. Well, that massive statement's to do with their religion and religious beliefs, mm -hmm. and they want to then press the button thinking they're going to some incredible heaven-like place with gold and you know, this and that, and God knows what else. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what, how they're able to press the button and kill themselves. Well, without my children, without other parents and their children, what they're going through, I wouldn't have had the fortitude for a hunger strike, Marianne. Mm -hmm. I, I could not possibly have done it. There's no way anyone can do it. Um, and, and it's certainly beyond my capacity to do it but I was able to do it because I had those bigger uh, purposes in my mind. Mm -hmm. So um, for a year, they would um, come down on end force. They would shut the whole prison, the whole prison. And what they were trying to do with that was to create ill feeling to other prisoners who are now losing out in their time out of cell. Mm -hmm. So you're talking, you know, I don't know how many people, how many prisoners were, were in some of these places, uh, thousands, you know, two, three, four, five, all knowing that 
they were shutting the prison down because of what they were doing to me. It was like an execution. You know, they shut the prison down when, you, when they execute someone. So, so that would happen. And then I, once they came down in force and, and they would have their cameras and this, that, and the other, um, they would strap me to a gurney and then they would start to administer, um, you know, the force feeding. Now, on the first occasion, um, which is I've only, <laughs> oddly enough, uh, about four weeks ago, had this fixed. Um, I had broken my nose playing football as a, as a late teenager mm. and, and um, a, a soccer football. And, and, um, and the, the bone uh, was smaller on the right-hand side of my nostril. Mm-hmm. So when he was trying, when um, and I again with this particular individual, no problem saying his name, Doctor Blanchett, um, under the orders of um, you know other um, uh, uh, prison officials such as uh, Doctor Suzanne Duquette, who was the head of psych at the time, um, he was trying to get the tube in my head, and it was so painful. Um, and even though I was strapped down, they then strapped my head down with a net. He got his knee up onto the gurney and pressed with his thumb into my left nostril. And what that did was snap my septum. So I was now even in more pain. (laughs) And um, that kind of force, they wanted to get a tube into my stomach so that they could put, um, you know, uh, liquid food into my body. And then they would put uh, saline into my arms. Now, what they apparently realized um, after doing this for a certain, and by the way, I was bleeding so badly from my nose. Thank mm-hmm. God my, and this is probably a good, before I go on to into that story a bit more than then the, uh, the psychology behind the story um, and the human rights piece. Um, I thankfully had gotten hold of the American Civil Liberties Union, the Connecticut chapter in particular, and um, a young, fresh face, um, what looked to me like a kid, uh, <laughs> like nothing more than a, an older teenager, who's like he's in his early 20s or something, um, <laughs> attorney David McGuire. And um, he has now made his way up where he's, in fact, the, the boss for all of the uh, Connecticut uh, American Civil Liberties Union. He is the main guy. So he made his way up and I was really his first um, case. And mm-hmm. so he represented me in terms of my human rights situation and, and then represented the attorneys who represented me in the trial. Um, and I went down to see him immediately. I was taken down in a wheelchair because he was there. He knew they were going to do it. Um, um, uh, he had to be notified. So we immediately went to the prison. Uh, he, uh, there was a couple of people with him as well, a couple of other lawyers. And I had put the tissues from my nose. And it was only really the back end of them. I didn't even get all the, the first ones. And I, and I shoved them up my sleeve. And I took them out my sleeve when I, when I was in the um, um, room with him, because it's private when you're with the lawyers. And I showed him all the blood 
on mm-hmm. the tissues and he, he just couldn't believe what he was seeing. And I said, you know, at the time I didn't know my septum was damaged. I didn't know mm-hmm. that for years later, to be fair. Um, so, um, so it just, it, it basically sat in a crooked position for years after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, um, you know, th- once they came on board, there was then going to be a full trial on this issue, mm-hmm. but some of the things that I went through in, um, in, in getting uh, force fed were horrific. They realized at one point that they were, they were giving me enough. Uh, it's, um, I'm trying to think of the, um, the stuff to a certain extent I try and use it to, uh, to this day, but it's like, it's like liquid food, mm-hmm. um, you know, and um, you know, what they do, they, they put it in a, in a, in a machine and the machine goes through the tube Mm -hmm. into your stomach. And they realized they were giving me enough to sustain me at the, at the life level Mm -hmm. that I was at. And they decided they no longer wanted to do that. So they went from keeping me at a standard of life, Mm -hmm. which they were obligated to do to giving me enough to keeping me alive and that was backed up by the fact that in a in a room after he sent the guard out of the room dr blanchett said all i have to do is keep you alive and what from there on in i got fed once a week usually on a monday morning Hmm. um and i got um i think it was 360 calories i got enough to keep me alive and then um I think the cold ensures the cold ensures. So um, then, with the with the the fluids for the hydration, um, what they did, and it was the middle of summer. I remember it clearly. Um, and and again, I would get this on a regular basis. But on one occasion, they um, it, there was a heat wave. It was about ninety five degrees outside. Mm. They shut off all the air conditioning in the in the in the prison hospital they shut it all off it was so humid and so hot you wouldn't believe and they put warm saline into my veins Mm -hmm. warm saline and um one lady black lady um lieutenant came in and she was like oh my god this is africa hot Mm -hmm. I mean, she was like, this is Africa hot. She couldn't stand being in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on another occasion, there was a captain who they, they, other than when they snapped my septum, they, uh, but the before, the before part, they would always film. And then later on, and I'll get into the trial momentarily after the trial, they would videotape the fact that they have to give me a range of motion. So after so many hours, they have to give me 15 minutes off the gurney to move around before they strap me back down again. So they would film that. And one captain walked in, grabbed the camera off of one of the um, custody officers, one of the um, COs, they call them, and threw the camera across the room, smashing it, as I recall. 
um, or at least bounced onto the wall, maybe onto something. I, I can't remember, but yeah, and um, and and yelled that you know he didn't sign up for this BS. He didn't mm-hmm. sign up for this. And why are we doing this to this guy? And mm-hmm. you know this, you know. So in other words, when you're restrained this way and and dealt with this way, this is for the the bad inmates who need to be restrained because they're out of control, not for somebody who's compliant. I was always compliant. I always made a brief statement at the start. I asked, I said, I'm protesting my innocence and um, for my children. Um, and I ask everybody here, not, I'm bring, it's bringing tears to my eyes, just thinking about mm-hmm. what I used to say. Um, and I used to uh, say, and I ask everybody here not to participate in this. And, um, and I said that every time. Mm-hmm. And and I think word got out, um, you know, and again, I think I said this to you last week about making analogies with World War Two and Hitler. And and mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you know the story, but when they were sadly assassinating Jewish people, they initially did it with firing squads. But then they, they stopped doing that only because of the psychology on their own men. Um, um, you know, shooting people dead, innocent people dead. Eventually, mm-hmm. uh, the, these, um, you know, uh, squads um, of soldiers couldn't handle it anymore. So mm-hmm. I think in some ways, some of these um, uh, COs and lieutenants and captains were not happy with, with the way I was being treated because I was compliant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, so I, you know, there, there was, there was a real problem with that and I, and I, not unbeknownst to me at the time. So anyway, um, my treatment of being strapped on a gurney for 16 hours at a time, being fed warm saline, whilst mm-hmm. only being given enough nutrition to keep me alive till the next week mm-hmm. was unbelievable. And I recall one time I was in a particular hospital and at that time, um, um, I was in a wheelchair. I was mostly in a wheelchair and my head was tilted over onto my shoulder. I was that, you know, skinny and, and that incapable waiting for somebody to take me to a visiting room. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, uh, the warden, I think, or the deputy warden walked by and he went, you know what, from here on in, uh, we're going to have your lawyers come to you because I, di- I, I don't think he wanted his men or the prisoners to see me in that condition. And, and, and I would like to think he had a bit of compassion for me as well. Uh, but I, I don't, you know, obviously don't know that, but he said, we'll have him come to you from here on in. Um, and then when I got in to see David on that visit, um, David still reminds me to this day, uh, uh, David McGuire, he, he reminds me to this day. He said, Bill, when I saw you that day, I honestly thought I would never see you again. I thought that was the last time I was going to see you. That's how bad you were. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, um, so anyway, it goes into, uh, and by the way, Mary, I'm pleased, you know, I know I'm um, telling a story here, but please feel free if you've got any questions or oh, not I making do. something, something I, clear. Go ahead, I've, please. I've got a good question. When they were jamming this nasogastric tube up your nose, yes. did, did they bother to check for placement? Once it was in, yeah, I think that's what they ultimately do. One, the the the, the doctor who um, was doing it was just somebody who was cold hearted, um, mm-hmm. just a bad person, 
um, somebody who was being paid and he was happy, he was being glorified. Mm -hmm. um, he, he was in his element at the trial. I mean, he just had a bad, bad reputation. He was not, um, you know, a good person. But the nurses, and, and, I, and I'll get into why they got more involved uh, with that. Um, uh, for the most part, I can't really recall anyone being anything otherwise, to be fair. Um, we're, we're nurses and they were trying to be, um, you know, as, as, uh, you know, that was, you know, they were doing what they, um, had to do and so on and so forth. So there was no, but, but there was, I remember talk of placement because the tube had to be in a certain part of your stomach. Right. Um, you know, and I, I I've obviously have heard you know, some people have described it as the most horrific uh, thing that can happen to you. Um, you know, it, it, some people called it a form of rape. Mm -hmm. um, some people have described it as the most horrific thing. They, you know, even doctors who apparently have to go through it to be able to administer it themselves for pe patients who actually need to be fed that way after certain types of operations, they've been in major mm -hmm. car accidents, whatever the case may be, you know, they've had to have experienced it for themselves apparently, and they have it done to them for that reason. And some of them have described it as the most horrific thing you can it's possibly, terrible. it is, mm -hmm. it's awful. And, and, and I, there was never, ever, um, you know, a good time. I remember times where they left it in too long and it was so, mm. so disfigured at the bottom. It was, mm. you know, it, it, I, I could go on with the horror stories forever. Mm. Um, but no, that's a, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. I think, I think um, it depends on who we're talking about on how much concern there was about that. I can think of one particular nurse who had been there for forever and, um, you know, I always liked that. And she was a very tough woman. I mean, you did not mess around with this woman. And, uh, but I, I could, but she was, she was so nice to me in, in, in as, in as much as she could be. Mm -hmm. And none of them were comfortable with what they had to do to me. None mm -hmm. of them. Um, and, you know, so, um, but anyway, um, uh, you know, from, from there, we had to go to a full trial. Mm -hmm. And essentially what happened in the full trial was um, they were, and again, this is to nutshell it. And by the way, the, the people that were put on as experts in my case were the same people that were involved with the White House, with the Guantanamo Bay inmates. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you recall that investigation many years ago, um, where there was this big investigation into Guantanamo Bay and the torture, waterboarding, and mm -hmm. all the rest of it. Oh, yes. It, 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 right. Well, believe it or not, there was, um, and I, I want to try and remember the exact figures, um, I think there was 325 inmates involved in that investigation. 324 of those inmates were at Guantanamo Bay. The one inmate that was not at Guantanamo Bay was me. Mm. Um, and so it's this United Nations investigation um, and um, uh, the, the special rapporteur on torture, uh, I think, as I recall, Manfred Nowak at the time, he was he was in, he was involved and found the United States in violation of my my human besides Guantanamo Bay inmates, my human rights 
by means of torture. And the only thing that was stipulated in my segment of the report that I did not re uh, get that the Guantanamo Bay inmates got was waterboarding. I was not waterboarded. Mm -hmm. um, but my treatment was deemed more severe than theirs. Mm -hmm. um, I was isolated for longer. Um, at, at one point, I had a beard down to my navel. Mm -hmm. They didn't give me hygiene, things mm -hmm. like toothbrushes and whatever. I was denied my um, uh, uh, legal documents. So even though I was in this gown that they, they use for suicide patients, mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't allowed a pen, um, I was still should have been able to be allowed to have my um, legal documents to review and read. Um, and I was denied that um, for, for much of the time. Um, the, the, the plan was, was to break me from my protest. And remember, I was on a protest to prove my innocence and for my children. So when you look at it, excuse me, from that point of view, um, uh, you know, and obviously being away in prison, the parental alienation is at its max at this point. And the children are being indoctrinated with the mm -hmm. fact that their father's in prison, their father's in prison for rape. How do they even talk about me? They can't. They can't speak about their, to their friends about it. They can't, they can't speak to their friends about their father. You know, oh, where's your dad? What about potential girlfriends or partners? You know, what, what do you say of where your dad is? Your dad's dead? I mean, how does a child deal with that? And, you know, I do happen to know that one of my children, I believe it was the youngest one, um, once old enough, did go onto my innocence website and clearly indoctrinated, was saying all sorts of things that he could only have gotten from uh, poison being said to him. Um, you know, so uh, you know, so I obviously will never blame them for anything they feel or anything they say. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's it these are false memories and i'm i'm hoping to, right. to talk about that a little bit um mm -hmm. after we we finish with the human rights piece um mm -hmm. so from the trial um they uh, 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 all all things bad sort of what um you know that we were hoping to end you know unfortunately um didn't fruit in that way um they, they allowed um, the, the state of Connecticut to continue to force feed me, uh, citing these absolutely woeful excuses, um, such as copycats and safety and security, which is absolute nonsense. It, you can't begin, just, just nonsense. Um, nobody's going to copycat. Nobody can do it. Nobody, unless you've got that, as I explained earlier, that cause visa. So it, the, these were just uh, fictitious things to to be able to to justify saying they can force feed. They they didn't take any heedance from the United Nations. They didn't take any heedance from the World Court of Human Rights and Civil Liberties, um, which had banned it throughout its practice throughout the planet. Um, so, you know, not, none of these came into effect. However, what was cited on, on, um, for my end was that if I was compliant, um, in other words, I did not um, in some way physically resist, and that's the key, physically resist being force-fed, they could no longer restrain me. Mm -hmm. 
So what that meant was at the time that they were going to force feed me, I went as far as to say, I do not have to allow anybody to put a tube into my body unless I'm ordered to do so. So what I got them to do on the record was they needed at least a lieutenant to come down and give me a direct order mm -hmm. to have that tube or whatever it was they were doing to force feed me um, put into me. And, uh, and then only if I refused that direct order, they would bring a squad down and cameras and, and uh, restrain me. But I just made them do that with the lieutenant. And I also made the statement about, you know, um, this violates my human rights and I'm mm -hmm. asking you not to do it. And I did that every time. And, um, but they obviously, you know, because I wasn't mm -hmm. physically resisting, I was mm -hmm. just making a statement. They could no longer restrain me and he put do whatever they had to do. So I was making a peaceful protest at that point. So that's, that's essentially what, what came out of um, the human rights part to my case. And I think the, the main reason I wanted to cover this is because for your listeners and anybody involved in parental alienation, you've got to keep finding ways to fight. Mm -hmm. If I can be in a prison and find a way to fight appropriately. Um, and, you know, to the point at which I'm, you know, prepared to sacrifice my life, I, I could, still could have done, um, you know, lifelong damage that I won't yet know about, um, apparently. Um, but, um, it, you know, anybody can find some way to continue to fight, you know, and, it, and if ever you, you, you get weaker in, in, in your fight, you just try and remember what it is that you started fighting for and why. And mm -hmm. once, you, once you do that, that should reju rejuvenate you. And that was my way, because I knew my children were going to be alienated. Um, they had been happening for the two years leading up to the trials. Um, I knew it existed. I knew it was happening. I saw it when I eventually was able to get supervised visitations with them, which nobody, including judges, wanted because they knew I was critical, as one judge put it, um, critical to be in their lives uh, because she couldn't cope. She just simply couldn't cope. Um, and um, she was reported to DCF on a couple of, uh, of occasions. Um, so anyway, um, you know, um, I found a way to continue to fight. I continued to fight in prison. That was about clearing my name, fighting for my kids, fighting for other parents and children. And I did it by means of, um, you know, whatever literature and letters and whatever else I could do, but also by a hunger strike. And to this day, to my knowledge, I'm still the longest serving hunger striker in United States history. Mm -hmm. And my case, um, and it's called Lance versus Coleman, um, is used um, in every state in the union. Uh, to force feed prisoners to this day, because the only way now my case can be overturned is in the United States Supreme Court. Now, I petitioned the United States Supreme Court. See, what, what happened from the trial court for the human rights, it went to the Connecticut Supreme Court, and the Connecticut Supreme Court sided with the trial court. So therefore, everything within the trial court stood so now that be, because it's a sister court to the other 49 states, that is now the Lord of the land. 
So the only way that law can be changed is if it goes to the United States Supreme Court or by a federal statute. Um, and there will never be a federal statute, to my reckoning, uh, to, you know, to say you can't force feed prisoners. Um, so, you know, unless somebody take, is able to get that, I, and when I petitioned the United States Supreme Court, they, they denied uh, hearing it. So it's now used by every state in the union to force feed a prisoner, Lance versus Coleman. So it's you, the Lord of the land. Can you, um, can you spell out Lance? Uh, L-A-N-T-Z or Z, as we say in this country, mm-hmm. Lance versus Coleman. She was the then commissioner. She no, Shortly thereafter, she wasn't the commissioner. She had actually mm-hmm. almost nothing to do with the whole situation, to be fair. It was the uh, state attorney who is now amazingly a senator in, in Washington. You mm-hmm. can't make this stuff up. Um, right. So anyway, um, so um, essentially my, my human rights case became... Um, Lord of the land. And when you figure there's been uh, other cases, I think the, um, I think, I think it was Chapman. It was he, the, uh, the guy who shot John Lennon. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, I believe uh, so. Yeah. So his case was one of the ones that, cause he, he, he did a hunger strike uh, briefly and that failed. And there was a couple of others uh, that were reasonably infamous um, in, in some way. But my case, um, you know, I mean, my case on Connecticut uh, news was, um, you know, one of one of the major um, things. There were some major incidences, and I don't want to talk about too much about some of these things. But there was a famous uh, TV producer that was uh, in a murder trial. My case often was ahead of his. There was uh, the two people who killed. The family in, in Cheshire, uh, Cheshire. Um, uh, that was a really sad case where uh, um, um, they essentially, uh, house invasion gone wrong. Mm. Um, they, they obviously thought they were all dead, but the father, who was a doctor, survived, uh, burning down the house, killing the, the mother and the daughters. The, um, I mean, uh, th- those two were facing the death penalty until it got, the death penalty got removed from Connecticut. Hmm. There was a, a Yale, uh, something to do with Yale University, a killer there. And I mean, these were all very famous cases at the time. And, and oh, the other one was the, um, somebody who I actually got to know, um, Michael Skakel. Um, mm-hmm. That was a case back from the 70s. Um, where he was accused of, uh, of um, murdering Martha Moxley. And I'm in the camp that he did not do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've met Michael and uh, he has no reason um, to, uh, you know, to have lied about any of those things. He, mm-hmm. he has, you know, I, and again, without going into that, the, the point I'm trying to make, uh, regardless of your point of view about any of those cases, is my case more often than not, were ahead in the news than those mm. cases. And they were not only cases being well publicized in Connecticut, but also in the country. Uh, you can imagine a, um, uh, a Kennedy relative <laughs> was making news all over the country. Um, and, and again, you know, my case in Connecticut certainly was, was certainly... Um, so it, it, you can find ways... Mm-hmm. Of um, of continuing to fight 
um, no matter how uh, big amount you think you've got ahead of you, you've just got to find a way of keep going. And that's exactly what I'm doing to this day. Um, so anyway, I, I mean, I think that ties us neatly into um, where I wanted to go next, which was, um, and, it, and to some extent I, I'm, I've covered it, which is, you know, parental alienation itself and loss. Um, the biggest thing, it, go, it goes back to the triangle again, the pinpoint of this, the biggest loss is your children in your life and in your children's life, the missing of that parent and everything else doesn't matter. Um, so everything I'm about to say is secondary to that. Mm -hmm. And I don't want anybody to forget what is the most important thing here. So everything else pales in comparison, but the losses that I've experienced, I didn't know my mother was dead for two years because they wouldn't tell me. They thought it would send me over the edge. Um, I lost my father when I was eight, um, which is, I, I, I think, one of the main reasons I was so attached to my children. And my, mm. my dad was a great dad, a great man. Everybody talked mm. about him, what, an unbelievable human being. And I wanted to be just like him, only alive. Right. I'm <laughs> and, so sorry. Yeah. And, and, and I, 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 unlike my brother, I have memories of my father and, you know, and I hate to say this, but I can't remember my mother before I was eight years old. I can only remember my dad and he was out of work all day. Mm -hmm. um, he actually worked on Concord. He was, um, you know, and there's rumors that during the war, he was actually um, a spy in Portugal, which is how he met my mother. Um, and then they eventually, after I had three sisters, I've got three sisters and they were all born in Portugal and they um, came back to the, uh, to England. And, um, you know, again, that's how, how, um, and then sadly shortly after, um, he passed away when I was eight mm. years old. Um, so, you know, but the other losses are, 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 you know, besides the ones I've just mentioned, again, the pinnacle being the children um, and feeling for them of what they've lost. But, you know, I had a coaching career that I was on the national staff. Um, I was teaching the licenses. I was... Um, uh, I had a business plan uh, for indoor soccer facilities and I'd made mm -hmm. inroads with people in the UK about a, a certain model of what that needed to look at like in the, in the U S mm -hmm. um, um, I don't know even if this is worth mentioning, but um, when I was working at the colleges, I had gotten involved with physiotherapists, a friend of mine, and it hadn't been done anywhere to do with resistance training. So it's everything from parachutes to your bungee cords to you know, on your legs, on your back, around your waist, this, that, and the other. And they wanted to experiment, and I allowed them to experiment on my teams. I won a national championship in 1993, and I had tried it on uh, those were, uh, uh, girls. Uh, youth players I tried it on them and then took it into the to the college when I when I uh, was hired by the university and and then I'm sitting in prison this is how fate um, mm -hmm. brings it together I'm sitting in prison um, in my hospital room one time so it has to be you know um, 
late 2000s, I, I suppose, uh, or mid 2000s, maybe somewhere in the mid to late 2000s. And I saw the clip from England and all these people in the background, all these um, professional players in the background, soccer players, were all using some of these, these, this equipment that I'd been using in 1993. Hmm. So again, I, I just felt as though something I could have remained at the, at the front of that mm -hmm. I had worked on with, with my friends and people in that business, all of a sudden is now employed everywhere in every sport. So, you know, um, I think there were, there were things that were taken away from my life um, that I could have achieved, that I was seen to be at the front of, that obviously I'll never recover from. I'll, it'll never be replaced. It will, mm -hmm. it, you know, we'll never know how that would have panned out. Mm -hmm. um, so again, um, I wanted to tie in, um, you know, the parental alienation and how it affects loss and not only loss for yourself in terms of your own life and the life that you've been leading and built, but obviously the loss that now doesn't exist. And this is the final part of it. Um, the, the loss for the children. If you think about my kids for a moment, everybody in their life is, is there out of fake conditions. So they have a relationship with the guys, the, the person who my ex-wife had the affair with and is, even according to the family court relations lady, manipulated and still does to this day with this falsehood. That's the thread that on the hook that she's got him on. Well, his entire family are only involved with my children because of that. So they would never have been there if it wasn't for that. So they, they have relationships under false pretense, or under fake circumstance people that should never be in their lives and and how would we know how good or bad those people are but it doesn't matter how good they are it just doesn't matter they shouldn't have been in their lives so if they really look if they ever come to a realization that their mother lied about everything and that you know their father was completely innocent they're going to say to themselves my entire life is fake is false. Nothing I have in my life is real because it's all based or built on that, including the people that they know. Um, their, their lives have become a lie, essentially. I think I mentioned last week they have no blood relatives in the US and the ones they have in the UK are people who have admitted they're responsible for creating this um, fraud, this situation. So whatever losses I've just mentioned for myself, pales in comparison to the loss that I feel my children and 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 it's almost like you want to get to the alienator before they even begin to say please think about this before you do anything mm -hmm. please think about this because one day down the road your children are going if they do discover what's happened are going to realize their entire life is a lie and you've changed the 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 the, the outcome of their lives um you know beyond anything anybody can do to change and that is just so sad mm -hmm. um so again i mean um 
you know, I did want to recap what we did in the previous weeks. I did want to touch on the human rights because I do get asked about that often in the, the torture I went through. And believe me, I could spend hours on what I went through, uh, what I saw. The isolation was just mind-numbing. There was one nurse who gave me a shower because she couldn't take it anymore. She gave me a shower and got fired. She either got fired or moved. I think she got fired. Um, she told a captain who was doing around one night, she said, I can't take this anymore. I can't do it. And I hadn't been in a shower in weeks. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she, she just said, she, she said, I can't take it. Can't take it. Can't take it. Can't take it. And I went in the shower and she was saying, you, you just, you know, and, and, and again, just like that captain who threw the camera, he, he was, you know, saying, you know, he was sort of like saying they were on my side. They didn't know why I was being treated this way. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk about the human rights and bring that into play and what I have done to continue the fight as I do today now in social media, even though they're 3000 miles away and in their twenties. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to discuss how parental alienation is involved with loss uh, myself personally and for my children. Um, and um, and I think really, you know, it's a, it's now as um, as a whole, what do we do and how we're moving forward? So I don't know from that little section if any questions came up for you, Marianne. Um, well, I'm happy to yeah, field them. This is all unjust. Should never have happened to begin with. And now, you know, your kids have lost time with you as well they'll never get that time back with their own father Correct. that should have been in their life and now as you said they're being led with a false narrative with some other fellow that does not even deserve to be in your place yeah i agree with that there's very little leeway i can give him now because he he could have found out more for himself but as sylvia said he's you know, I think he's he was an exec with Frito Lay or something or whatever. So it's not like he's a stupid person, but he had money, and but he he was an unworldly person apparently, and not and according to the family court relations lady, uh, not in the same league as my ex-wife. Mm -hmm. You know, so you can take that for whatever it means. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just you know he would you ordinarily he wouldn't have stood a chance with somebody that looked like my ex-wife mm -hmm. um so with that said he was he was misled but at some point as a grown human being as a man you know when do you really start trying to something doesn't add up and when do you start worrying that that couldn't happen to you now from what i understand she had no more children so what this guy doesn't realize He's gone through his entire life. He's now past the time where he can probably meet somebody who's young enough to have children. He's now never going to be a biological father. So short of me finding out, he's got no, you know, biological need to be a father, which, you know, I know there's both mothers, um, women and men who don't have paternal instincts, mater maternal and paternal instincts. I get that. But, you know, he, he's now not given a choice if he's bought into that whole narrative and bought into here. So he, he's never going to have that choice. But if he does feel like he, he has something he, you know, 
like he wanted to be a father. Um, and he certainly can't be a father to my children. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's changed their destiny. It's changed their entire lives. Um, and what may or may not have been, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll never know. Um, I just, I, you know, my, my thing would be before I die, I would mm -hmm. like to feel I could clear my name. So that would at least be something for my children that I could do for my children. I will never be involved with them in trying to make them see that. So I won't let people reach out to them. Um, I won't, um, you know, do anything to make the first move, first step, first anything for them. That's really a journey that they need to take for themselves because the only outcome would be if I was successful is that I've sabotaged their mother and they've already lost one parent and mm -hmm. I do not want to be responsible for as bad a parent as she is um, for them to lose the second one. So I think that's something that they have to stumble across, do for themselves and at, at some point go, you know, um, we now have a different realization and then, of course, I'd be open arms to them mm -hmm. always. And I, but I can't allow myself to think of that. And I just say to myself, it's just never going to happen. All mm -hmm. I can do is clear my name. So I've done my side of the, the situation. Um, and then on the bigger picture side is to know that it will continue to happen unless I lend my voice and, and try and offer ways that it potentially um parental alienation will end forever and it, because it has no place in society there's no need for it um the, the you know at the only time a parent should be removed from the life of a child is if that parent has actually done something that is proven not this reason within reasonable doubt and all that actually done something so if you've murdered people if you're you know, this or whatever the case may be, there's no question you can't have those kinds of people around children. But when you clearly know these are being used as tools in a, in a custody battle, mm -hmm. there, there's no place for it. There's absolutely no place for it, no reason for it. And I think I have um, said within these podcasts that is now science available to, but unfortunately it's never, that's not going to be supported because now you don't need as many lawyers and judges because you've, you're using science instead. Uh, the hypocrisy is, mm -hmm. oh, it, it's, it's huge. And, you know, again, um, I think we, we have to keep children as the, uh, the focus of the alienation, but the pain and the suffering of a parent losing a child. Um, as somebody once said to me, um, you know, when, when you lose a child to death for whatever reason, um, you have a grave site, you can, you can get closure, you can visit, you can this, you do whatever you, you and your God can do. But the worst thing you can have as a parent is the photograph of your child on the back of a milk carton. Now, mm. for the people in the UK and around the world listening to that, what that means is in the US, 
there used to be uh, pictures of missing children being on milk cartons because that was the thing that used to be uh, most widely used um, or most not sold in the United States. So you'd have a missing child on a milk carton. So having your child photograph, it, it means there's no closure. It's an open wound. It's, it, it, I don't know what my children are thinking, what they're experiencing, what they're going through, what pain that they've got, what needs, what joys, what this, what that, nothing. It, 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 it's just an unknown. And for any parent, that is the worst thing on planet Earth. Um, so, you know, you, you do try and put it out your mind, but you just try and stay focused to keep fighting. And that's, that's the message I want to um, sort of get across. So I, I think the only thing um, I have um, that I did want to mention was about moving forward. And, and I think, I think we've covered it, Marianne. I think mm -hmm. we've talked about a united front. Um, I think I've made myself clear about uh, wanting mothers and women at the, the front of this fight, because I think it's the only way parental alienation can be defeated. Men will not be able to defeat parental alienation. Fathers, men, it's just not possible. Only, only um, I think not only with mothers and women uh, helping, but mothers and women leading. I mm -hmm. think that's, that's the thing. Um, I do have a funny, I don't know if it's a funny idea, and uh, you, uh, again, take it with a pinch of salt and your readers, uh, your uh, listeners can too, but, um, you know, people talk about, you know, hit them where it hits in their wallet, and uh, I'm sorry to all the Valentine's Day people here when I say this, <laughs> but, you know, th th there's often statements made about this, that, and the other, but, you know, romance and love songs and all these things are very prevalent in our society and they are getting to be more and more older idea ideals than than they are you know sadly things that are current and i'm just wondering if some sort of statement of parents mothers fathers uh, grandparents um, you know uh, nieces you know people who understand what this disease is you know whether there can't be a ban on on valentine's day and 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 the connection i make to that is you know if ultimately two people fall in love have children and then one of them turns into an alienator um that is not something that we would want to promote so you know I'm, I'm clutching at straws a little bit. I'm trying to find a visible cause. And I'm certainly not the person to instigate this on social media. So I'm hoping one of your listeners may be the person to do this. But, but you know, Valentine's Day, with everything that it represents, and in my ideal world, I, I think it's great. But unfortunately, is, is, is that or an idea similar to that? that it becomes a worldwide cause. How do we make parental alienation a worldwide topic where, you know, um, like we're currently, you know, experiencing with Afghanistan and prior to that we were experiencing with the pandemic and prior to that here in the UK, we were experiencing with Brexit. You know, how do we get, you know, parental alienation in some sort of high um, you know, high-profile situation. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I, I thought about was, well, I wonder if Valentine's Day and, a, and a ban, you know, banning Valentine's Day in honor of uh, 
parental alienation is mm -hmm. the way to go again i'm i'm spitballing as we say in the mm -hmm. u.s mm -hmm. um you know I'm, uh... well i i can join you um what what if there were parental alienation cards that parents could send to other parents who are alienated you know we're, we're yes. all networked you know why not you know send each other cards to lift each other up on valentine's day that we're all well yeah yeah, yeah on that yeah you could do it that way send send mm -hmm. something that way uh, um uh, yeah and and that that's another way to do it. instead of doing uh, uh but but again this is where i think someone mm -hmm. somewhere maybe it's a new person that's gotten involved with parental and they're looking to you know uh, I'm too well entrenched with my fight and, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, uh, but I would certainly support new ideas, but, but again, you know, I, I'm thinking uh, in terms of, you know, money and, and economies and you, we all know that, it, it, you know, and again, this is a U.S. thing initially. It's like, mm -hmm. if you want to hurt somebody, you do it in their wallet. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, if, if, if some business somewhere loses billions because of something, I've just got the suspicion things will change. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it happens that way. And and again, this is just, you know, ideas. And I don't, I'm not even sure that's, that's the one. I'm just, I just think this somehow has to become a, um, a more global tour. We all know, when we're in it, we're all connected. You're connected. I'm connected to millions of people that are involved with parental alienation. Mm -hmm. We're all there. Everybody's there, but it's not being talked about at the um, mass media, the the top media, you know, the BBC, NBC, ABC, CBS, CNN, you know, um, Sky as uh, here as well. And, you know, it, it's not being told governments, it's not being talked about at that level. And the statistics to do with uh, children that are from single parents or who have no contact uh, with their father, um, you know, the higher rate of, um, of, of people being in, um, going to jail, uh, more teen pregnancies, more drug use, more failures at school. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Some of the stats that I've, uh, uh, that I've you know, uh, come across has just been, you know, uh, even, even blown my mind. And, you, and we can all imagine, I think it, it's a given when, when a mother is missing from a child's life. I think society has a very easy way of, of going, oh yeah, of course, mother's missing, that child's going to be missing blah, blah, and blah. And I think that's, that's great. That's, that's fantastic. Um, so when, but the sad part for parental alienation the alien mothers are only that 20%. So it's not that 20% is not big enough for that even to be in the narrative. So, you know, so when you, then you look at the father side, it happens to be the 80%. Well, unfortunately a father missing is not taken as seriously then as the mother's side. So either side, there's drawbacks as to why it's not in that national and global conversation, um, and we and I just wish there was something 
And I don't know what that would be that would trigger it. And the only thing I've come up with over the years is a complete ban on Valentine's Day and try and get support for that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's I'm trying to think of something that's global and well, something that can have an impact. I think they should just get rid of Mother's Day and Father's Day. It's yeah. really only just a card uh, selling idea that some jerk came up with. Because as you said, not only are parents alienated but what if your parent is dead then you have to look at mother's day or father's day and it just depresses everybody agreed agreed and maybe maybe if it is mother's day and father's day that's taken on as being um you know at least temporarily banned it will make a headline but how do you get people who are not involved in parental alienation um willing to not honor their mother and father uh, in that way, it's that's a difficult. It's a bit like if if uh, you know when do people start contributing to cancer um, charities when mm -hmm. somebody in their family's got cancer? Mm -hmm. So up until that point, there's the the the, the I'm not saying that there aren't people. Of course, there are people who have nobody in their lives that are affected by cancer who will donate to a cancer charity. Of course, there are. Um, but not in the quantities and the percentages of people who in some way by family or friends are connected to somebody who has cancer. So it's the same thing. How can we get people who have no connection with parental alienation, um, um, you know, join a cause to, um, you know, um, not participate in something like, a Mother's Day, a Father's Day, a Valentine's Day, whatever the case may be. And perhaps we're, again, we're, we're barking up the wrong tree with, with what we're thinking of. But, but we're, what we're trying to say is what is, the, what is the thing that will get everybody on this planet on board, on, uh, involved? Because the statistics show how bad um, children generally can turn out Mm -hmm. And if you look at the children who, who are fail are failing in society, the ones in prison, the ones who are pregnant, the ones who are drug, drug addicts, you can often lead it back, obviously, to their childhood, to their upbringing. And lots of the time is a dysfunctional mother-parent relationship, even parental alienation. The statistics are there and show it all day long. So perhaps what the way I should leave it instead of saying Valentine's day, maybe one of your listeners can come up with the idea that will light the Roman candle or the, you know, the, the firework rocket that, you know, brings mm -hmm. our cause into the um, mainstream media and we can, you know, uh, fight it on a more collective global scale. So, um, so really, um, I think we've done well nutshelling all of this, Marianne. Um, oh, definitely. And I'm so glad that I had you on and your story is so tragic. And I'm glad you're still standing. Thank you. And you're moving forward. I mean, you are. I don't know inspired. how. <laughs> uh, but you somehow, you know, you are an inspiration to people that have been under false accusations and yeah. lies and imprisoned for no good reason. Just to know that they're not alone. And I think that uh, if nothing else, that helps. And again, I would direct um, your listeners to some of my social media. Please take a look at my YouTube video that was done for me. I was um, interviewed on, um, again, Bill Coleman, Silver, Silver Bullet. 
Um, and also, um, if you can go on alienate appearance by false allegations uh, and share and spread that around, I think the more we're coordinated, the more we're connected, the better and stronger we'll be. Um, you know, and and hopefully this this you know nutshell version of my situation will help someone. Let them know they're not alone, and um, you know, in terms of their fight and their struggle, and uh, you know, again, hopefully one day we can eradicate this uh, forever. It, 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 there's no reason for it to exist. We're, we're right. living in you know right. 2021 here. There's no we can cure a worldwide pandemic. You know, how is it we're still living in in you know retro times, past times? with alienating children in archaic family courts and criminal courts. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I, I don't get it. I, there is absolutely, there's nobody who I can debate on air that would be able to win that argument with me. And I, only because I know what the truth is of, of the matter. So anyway, I hope that's helped Marianne. And, and, and I guess the, one of the last things I do want to say is thank you for what you do. I'm sorry for the pain that you suffer personally, um, and if I can be of any help. But you know, I'm I'm grateful of the opportunity to have shared my story, and I'm hoping it would and it will help someone. Most definitely, thank you so much. And I would like to remind everyone this has been done in three episodes, and that is episode 78, 82, and now 89. So thank you so much, Bill. You are welcome, William. Thank you so much. Sure. Slam the Gavel is a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in the family courtrooms that in turn perpetuate parental alienation. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again with another exciting episode. Thank you again, Bill. Thank you. God bless. Bye, Marianne. Thank you. Bye.